Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ida Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Tel Aviv. It's Friday, the 24th of September. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, what has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history? All right. I am self-isolating in a hotel in Tel Aviv before I can start reporting. So I'm going to keep this very quick before my Wi-Fi cuts out. I will note that the United States, the Biden administration, which ran on restoring the soul of America is currently forcibly deporting Haitians from Texas. Images came out of border guards using uh, whip-like cords on people who are here seeking asylum. I think this story may have gotten somewhat lost in the shuffle of the UN General Assembly and of the important subject we will be discussing later on in this episode. But I did want to note that the headlines saying that Biden is using Trump-era tactics against Haitians are not unfair. And what about you, Ida? The biggest story in international politics has obviously been the continuing fallout of the AUKUS Treaty, which we're going to talk about with our guest. But one of the stories that caught my eye this week were the results from the Russian Duma elections. Now, obviously, they were never seriously in doubt. But even so, there seems to have been a new level of, honestly, fraud in these elections, which is pretty unprecedented. We have a very good piece from Felix Light on the website in which he says that although Russian elections were very rarely free and fair, they weren't completely fake. And in particular, the use of electronic voting in these elections, which saw the ruling party United Russia returned with a constitutional supermajority. The use of electronic voting in these elections has apparently led to a level of fraud and just fake votes that is pretty unprecedented in modern Russian history. And there's some analysis. So for example, one statistician, Sergei Spilkin, estimates that perhaps half of United Russia's official votes were fraudulent. They just, they didn't exist. And he bases that on an analysis of election data and polling station data. Yeah, it's it's just a, a very interesting, obviously quite depressing, but very interesting look at how Putinism is developing. And there are fears among the opposition that if electronic voting is rolled out more widely ahead of, for example, the 2024 presidential elections, then these could have been the the last semi-genuine elections in Russian history. So definitely a, a grim omen. With that, it's time to move on to our guest. 
We are delighted to be joined by Professor Rory Medcalf, who is head of the National Security College at the Australian National University and the author of Indo-Pacific Empire, China, America and the Contest for the World's Pivotal Region. Rory, you wrote a piece for the New Statesman website, I think the day after this new treaty between the US, the UK and Australia was announced by the three leaders which sparked much outrage, especially from the French and other Europeans. Can you just outline what the treaty is and why it's so significant? Sure. I'm happy to be on the program. I would even hesitate to call it a treaty at this stage. I mean, it's an arrangement among three countries where I guess we've got a clear agreement among the three leaders and presumably sufficient agreement among their security bureaucracies to be able to announce it. But the arrangement we're talking about here, going by the the rather unwieldy acronym of AUKUS, Australia, United Kingdom, United States, is, as I see it, mainly a technology sharing agreement, a very sensitive top shelf defence technology sharing agreement, and an agreement that will enable the three countries to really go in for what I would almost call full spectrum sharing of security technologies for cyber security, for military purposes, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, all the the critical stuff that is the, the commanding heights of international power politics in the decades ahead. But most importantly, in the immediate term, an agreement to help Australia acquire nuclear powered submarines from the United States and the United Kingdom even though those submarines may not enter service for a long time. So it is something of a watershed moment. It's a really big and substantial defence technology agreement that is really about the balance of power in this region, the Indo-Pacific region, and ultimately that's about China. Many of our listeners will have noticed that the French have reacted pretty vigorously and, and with a lot of outrage to the new agreement. And in particular, that's because the Australians had entered into a contract to buy 12 diesel-powered submarines from France in 2016, which they have now backed out of. And that's a contract worth at this point, I think, about 90 billion Australian dollars. But as you've said, the Australians are instead going to buy nuclear-powered submarines from the UK and America. Can you just explain why Australia felt the need to get nuclear-powered subs instead of the diesel ones it was going to buy in France. Sure. And look, this is a big controversy, and I'm sure we'll get to the French reaction later, and and, and I've certainly got some significant sympathy for the, the French position on this. But the military capability decision, the almost, in a sense, existential security decision that the Australian government has taken is that Australia needs nuclear-powered submarines because of the exceptional security circumstances of Australia's region. Nuclear-powered submarines have all sorts of military advantages over conventional or diesel-electric submarines, particularly in the distances that they can cover, the amount of time for which they can stay submerged, which is really limited only to, to human endurance, rather than to the technology, and in in short, their ability to act as weapons of deterrence, of surveillance, or indeed of war fighting. 
and in a strategic environment where there is a very strong set of anxieties in this region about China's power, China's coercive power against a number of other countries, and the the growing risks of military confrontation between a number of countries and China. The Australian government has essentially decided that for the years to come, Australia needs this capability, noting, of course, also that Australia has this, I guess, problem of proportion, an enormous territory, an enormous continent, responsibility for something like sort of 10% of the world's maritime zones in in, in patrolling and monitoring and, and so forth. And yet uh, a relatively small population and traditionally an aversion to the use of nuclear power. So the view was reached in the end that only nuclear powered submarines could provide what Australia needs. And I guess the, the hope to reverse engineer French submarines to fit the bill was abandoned. Earlier this week, Biden said that the United States has no closer ally than Australia. Firstly, what did you make of that? And secondly, do you think that this this changes the situation between the United States and Australia? Does it bring the two closer or is it a formalization of the status quo? So Australia and the United States have been formal security allies for 70 years, the called ANZUS Treaty, which goes back to 1951. And although we were all familiar with American presidents telling every ally that they're the closest at any given particular time, there is something singular about this situation. That is, the United States is moving to a pretty comprehensively competitive stance against China, partly to protect its friends and allies in the region, partly also, I think, because of, I guess, America's own security concerns and its own, if you like, preeminence in the region and the world and its sense of being a leader in protecting a um, a liberal democratic order. And I think this signals that Australia is an absolute linchpin in America's alliance strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Australia and Japan really are the big two. And I think from a global perspective, when we look at all the many alliances and partnerships that the United States has in different circumstances around the world, this now, whether we like it or not in this country, elevates Australia to really that that front rank. And it will be interesting to see over time, for example, how the ballet of Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom works out under this arrangement, because some could argue that Australia will almost serve the role in this new era of competitive coexistence with China that the United Kingdom really filled during the Cold War. And how do you see this new coalition overlapping or not with the other regional group of Quad, right, which is the United States, Australia, Japan, and India. Well, that's right. The trend in this region to balance Chinese power is something that people in this field tend to call minilateralism. Uh, so it's a term for international relations watchers to get used to. Minilateralism is small self-selecting groups, three, four countries, maybe a few more, but not many more, combining their their capabilities, their interests, and their willingness to work together. It seemed to be a more, if you like, practical solution than, if you like, waiting for multilateral consensus among everyone or relying only on unilateral or um, you know, bilateral alliance activities. 
The quad is the most prominent minilateral in the Indo-Pacific, Australia, the United States, Japan, and India. And in the last couple of years, the Quad has risen to new prominence. Indeed, the in-person Quad Summit, the leaders meeting in the United States this week, is going to be quite historic, I think, because there we'll see the Quad leaders take the next steps in cooperation on critical technologies and, and harder security as well, I suspect. So the Quad, US, India, Australia, Japan, is not at odds with AUKUS, and that's a really important point to note. Australia and the United States are in both. Their purposes are somewhat different. AUKUS is primarily about security technology sharing to really bolster Australia and bolster Australia's position in the alliance network in the Indo-Pacific. The Quad is about four countries loosely joining forces across a broader spectrum of issues, which could range from maritime security to climate policy coordination, vaccine, COVID vaccine relief to the region, sharing critical technologies and building alternative technology supply chains that are not so reliant on on China and diplomatic coordination. The Quad is really, if you like, a, a fairly blank canvas that the four countries can write on according to their comfort levels. AUKUS is about technology. And I don't think that India and Japan are particularly uncomfortable with AUKUS. In fact, I think Japan in some ways will find its security better served by AUKUS than it would have been had Japan won the original deal to sell conventional submarines to Australia, which incidentally was a prospect until Japan was dislodged from that pillar by France in in 2016. So that wheel has turned. We'll get on to China in a second. But before we do, I think it's worth just asking the questions. There was some talk in the UK, at least, and I don't know about Australia and US, that the AUKUS deal was significant because it was three English-speaking countries of roughly similar political cultures and traditions, what could be considered part of what some people call the Anglosphere and and so on. Is that at all worth taking seriously, this kind of civilizational aspect of the deal? Or is it is it not? What's your view on that? Well look, it's it's not a coincidence that these three countries are sharing basically the most intimate levels of military and intelligence secrets with each other. But I would argue that this is not about, you know, it's, it's it's not about culture in any ethnic or even historical sense. It's it's much more about uh, trust, and it's about a a long the long sharing of sensitive intelligence among the countries built on experience, built on values. I'd, I even have noted that while these three countries can be called. Anglo-Saxon, they're actually three of the most multicultural liberal democracies in the world, in fact, significantly more multicultural than a number of the other countries that perhaps accuse them of, of, if you like, some sort of Anglo-Saxon monoculture. So I don't, I wouldn't overstate that, but I do think, and incidentally, I'm not referring to France there, which I also would respect very quickly as a multicultural country, but I wouldn't overstate the Anglosphere dimension I would, however, link this back to the trust that the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia built up as part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing 
uh, arrangement over many years, uh, which also includes New Zealand and, and, and Canada. Um, you know, this sort of uh, technology sharing would not be conceivable without that that pre-existing bedrock of, of familiarity, including at a professional level, our security communities, our defence departments, our militaries are very accustomed to operating hand in glove. So the AUKUS agreement doesn't mention China explicitly, but as you've said, it is very clearly intended to codify a growing anti-China alliance in the Indo-Pacific and try and push back against Chinese ambitions in the region. But these, at least the centrepiece of the new agreement, the submarines, aren't going to be delivered for probably about a decade and a half, maybe longer. And obviously China in that time is going to continue to rise and is probably going to try and put pressure on Australia and perhaps the other members of AUKUS too in in the Indo-Pacific. And we've seen that China is able to throw its weight around when countries in the region take actions that it perceives as against its national interest. How sustainable is it going to be? Is this deal going to hold? Is, is Australia going to be able to, Australia in particular, going to be able to withstand the pressure? I think this deal, for me at least, is a signal that Australia has crossed a kind of Rubicon, that, we've, that we really have crossed a, a threshold, certainly not the threshold to nuclear weapons, thankfully, but a threshold to nuclear propulsion in submarines, which is a big political deal in Australia. At this stage, the Australian Labor opposition is broadly okay with it, not okay with the diplomacy of it, but okay with the capability side of it, is a real signal that Australia is is getting very serious about defence and China is the main factor there. And so that suggests, to my mind, a pretty grim long-term commitment in Australia now. And I'd say a pretty serious commitment from the the other two partners as well. And yes, a bet, but a bet on coalition building, alliance building, to use the strategic jargon, deterrence and balancing against China, not forgetting that we're not the only three countries in this story. Look at Japan, look at India, look at Vietnam for that matter, and we'll get onto the the Europeans in a moment. There are many countries that have an interest in preventing this region from being dominated by one power. And there's a recognition, as I argue at the core of my book, that this is going to be a very long game, certainly a a 10, 20-year contest for influence. Some of the more, if you like, disturbing military flashpoints may well come sooner. It is conceivable that within the next five years or so, we will see China take aggressive action against Taiwan, for instance, or really as a pretty central case in in this region. And you could argue, well, on the one hand, maybe Australia and and AUKUS have staying power for this long partnership, but we won't have this new submarine capability in the water within the next five years. However, there's a whole lot that goes with, I think, not only the AUKUS arrangement, but also the the parallel beefing up of the Australia-US alliance bilaterally and the modernisation of Australian military and other militaries That means that uh, I think even within a few years, we're likely to see Australia as a substantially hardened part of the regional security architecture. We may well have, for example, a pretty uh, substantial conventional missile capability in this country, which is a new thing. We may well have uh, much more frequent access by US forces 
to Australia for training, for logistics, for dispersion, not quite bases, but almost bases. And possibly I've seen headlines that we'd have to query increased access by the, the British Navy, the Royal Navy as well. AUKUS is part of something much bigger. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So that actually brings us nicely into a section that we like to call You Ask Us. There has been so much made of the the French reaction to this. The French livid, both because of the contract and because they were blindsided. They recalled their ambassadors from Australia and the United States, which they didn't do under Trump, even when he withdrew from the Iran deal and pulled out of the the Paris the climate agreement and all of this. I think in Washington, there was some sympathy originally that then transformed into, okay, you guys are being too dramatic about this. Like we need to come back together. Macron and Biden spoke this week and apparently started writing the ship, so to speak, though not the submarine. But Rory, our listener question this week is, what is the Australian response to the French reaction to AUKUS? Look, there are, there are probably several Australian responses. And as in any democracy, it's not all one voice. Look, just to, to start on that really important point, I'm someone who personally is a um, strategic analyst and as a a think tanker and and scholar has done a lot of work over the years in trying to build and encourage the Australia-France relationship and in fact the broader engagement of France in the Indo-Pacific, for example, working with French and Indian colleagues on a trilateral dialogue of those three countries. And 
I think my own perspective reflects that of quite a lot of the Australian strategic community where, where we think France remain, is and remains a, a vital actor in the region. We, we, people forget in many parts of the world that France is a resident power in the Indo-Pacific. It maintains not only territory and populations here, but a significant military presence and is a partner for Australia in all sorts of areas, monitoring of the regional environment, helping support stability and governance in the region, maritime protection of the global commons, and of course, the role that France plays in regional diplomacy and a a strategic presence. So all that is true. That said, uh, a lot of the, uh, in fact, overwhelmingly, the strategic community in Australia also recognises that in the end, we need the most capable forces that we can reasonably acquire to deter conflict and provide actually assurance to other countries in the region. The submarine program for Australia really is the crown jewels. I think that the the embarrassment that many in Australia feel is over the aspects of the diplomacy and the handling of the, the break with France over the conventional submarine contract but not over the principle of, of changing horses or changing ships, changing boats. And to be fair, there's also a view in Australia that the French corporate or the French state-backed corporate naval group was somewhat taking the customer for granted. So who knows? The, I guess the, the facts will come out on that in time. Australia now needs to work with the United States and Britain to, uh, as we've heard with Biden, to steady the ship and to reassure France and to salvage what we can of a relationship, which I think over time will continue to be cooperative. But there's no doubt that this was a really hard, grim, pretty blunt decision. It does surprise me that there couldn't be clearer communication with the French before the announcement. And I think this is going to take quite a bit of of healing. And it's a tragedy in a way because on the one hand, Australia with the US and the UK is building a serious deterrent in the Indo-Pacific to prevent Chinese coercion. But on the other hand, the diplomacy of stability in this region, the diplomacy of building inclusive coalitions that will protect a rules-based order, maybe not in a military sense, but through diplomatic pressure and norms. That needs to include France and it needs to include the widest range of countries that we can muster. And this episode has certainly damaged that aspect of Indo-Pacific strategy. Would it theoretically have been possible to manage this, the break with France and, and the, the breaking of the contracts better? Because as you've alluded to, in Australia, there isn't really, there doesn't seem to be that much debate over the necessity to acquire nuclear submarines. And to be honest, the, the French probably understand that too. But what they really don't like is how they were blindsided and not given any warning and, and so on. So would it have been possible to manage that? I'm not privy to the the mechanics of the communications. There are mixed reports of whether there were you know phone calls attempted that were not received or, or, or not. But all of that is a little trivial in the circumstances because there was clearly a fundamental decision by the three AUKUS members to keep the process as secret as possible. I mean, it was very tightly held even within our three governments. And as someone who follows the security debate in Australia, it was as as new to me as it was to any sort of casual follower of the news or, or, or foreign government for that matter. So you'd like to think that 
there could have been an earlier, clearer set of signals. But I don't think that the AUKUS deal was finalised until it really was finalised. I don't think that the, the discussions on the margins of the in Cornwall back in June or much of the other back and forth that's been reported, I don't think that was the final decision. And for such a sensitive capability issue, I think that there was nervousness that in some way it would be derailed if if information was shared or, or if it was announced uh, at all before it was finalised. It's not for me to, if you like, give explanations or excuses on that. I think the full story is yet to come out. But it is surprising that the diplomacy uh, of messaging this was not handled as well as the diplomacy of, of crafting what is actually a pretty, a pretty extraordinary strategic deal. Do you think this bodes ill for Europe and the Indo-Pacific more broadly, or is it more of a bilateral issue? So I think, firstly, that, again, the United States, Britain and Australia, and I put the US first, mainly because it has the most influence in this dynamic, need to move quickly to reassure France and reassure Europe of the role that they can and should play in this region, because the Indo-Pacific is essentially the global centre of gravity in power balances and ensuring that China's rise doesn't lead to conflict, is not completely destabilising. So there's a vital European role to play. And of course, at the, in the very same week that the AUKUS decision was announced, the European Union had finalised and released its own very clear consensus strategic communication on what an EU Indo-Pacific policy looks like. So the EU is going to be engaged in this region to stay, not just France, but Germany, the Netherlands, many EU members have, have come around to that. I don't think that the sense of shock and, and, and mistrust that this has uh, generated, at least with France, is going to fundamentally derail the need for Europe to engage with the Indo-Pacific. And Europe was already doing this in a way that wasn't completely aligned with American strategy. If we remember the, in a sense, the sense of betrayal that the incoming Biden administration felt, and I suspect the frustration that countries like Australia felt when on the eve of Trump's departure, there was the the effort to push the China investment agreement through the EU system. There's all sorts of, if you like, poor choreography in, in building these coalitions. But it's going to be a very long contest for influence, indeed struggle for influence in this region. And I think European powers even now know that to deal with China as a systemic rival, and of course Europe has essentially now identified China as a systemic rival, they need to play a role in the Indo-Pacific and they need to coordinate uh, as closely as they can with the United States, with Japan, with Australia, with India, with all of these partners. So I don't think that this is in any way a kind of end game for the nascent European role in the Indo-Pacific, but it is going to cause some, you know, some pretty serious disruption in the medium term. And a lot will depend now on the assurance, the damage control, and hopefully the bridging that other countries play with Europe. And in fact, there I would see that the Quad has a role. I think it's not just for America or indeed for Australia, but countries like India and Japan, I think can now really preach pragmatism to our European friends. That's a nicely forward-looking note on which to move on to our final segment in which we take a look 
at events in the week to come in world politics. Rory, what will you be keeping an eye on? I, I hate to um, not change the subject, but I, I will be watching the Quad meeting in the United States coming up. I will be watching that along with China's reaction, whether it's to that, whether it's to AUKUS and the overall Chinese diplomacy that we're seeing in the region, in the United Nations context. It, it is that season, it's that time of year where a lot of the theatre of international affairs becomes very real and, and, and if you like, the theatre meshes with the, the practical realities. China's seeking to join the, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the, the CPTPP, very tricky acronym to pronounce there, but essentially the successor partnership to the Regional Free Trade Agreement that the United States under Obama sought to introduce to the Indo-Pacific and then ended up not uh, joining. So China's making a play to be accepted as a, a kind of a, a good trading, a good and open trading and investment partner in the region, precisely at the time when it's, I think, beginning to perceive this hardening of balancing at a strategic level, the Quad, AUKUS and so forth. Some could even argue that's a signal that this balancing, this coalition building is working because it's um, compelling China to seek some slightly more creative and cooperative approaches to prosecuting its interests rather than the coercion, the wolf warrior diplomacy that we've seen in recent years. But I'd go back finally to the Quad. I think the the meeting of the Quad leaders and especially the role of, of the Indian leader actually of, of Narendra Modi is pretty significant here. It's a chance for India to play something of a bridge builder with, with Europe. Who would have thought that we'd have India seeking to be a bridge builder between the United States and Europe or Australia and Europe? It's, if you like, a serious moment of agency for for India. Japan as well, even though, uh, of course, Prime Minister Suga is, is on his way out. And finally, the agenda for the Quad is important because this is going to reach uh, very comprehensively beyond narrow security in the Indo-Pacific. It's about providing alternatives to China in critical technologies, in infrastructure, in vaccine distribution. That's the one to watch. How the Quad and AUKUS coordinate in years to come, I think, will send some pretty important signals, uh, including for how Europe can engage with and contribute to the security of the Indo-Pacific beyond this current storm. And Emily, what will you be looking forward to? I am going to channel our boss and also World Review co-host and say, Jeremy, and say that the German elections, finally, after weeks of special Germanly elects episodes and podcasting and excellent writing at the New Statesman are upon us this Sunday, September 26th. You, that's right, you, the listener, can go to newstatesman.com slash Germany and follow a live results blog that will be starting at 6 Berlin time, 5 London time, and noon Washington, D.C. time. And you will have analysis, data, and commentary. And then shortly thereafter, there will be a snap reaction episode of the Germany Elects podcast. So I think that's one for all of us to keep our eyes and ears on at the beginning of next week. And what about you, Ido? I will be keeping an eye on what's happening with the Chinese property developer Evergrande, which is in a debt crisis and threatened with collapse. And if it did, I think property is worth something like 15 or 20% of the Chinese economy. So it's obviously huge. And this is China's biggest, I think, biggest developer and its most indebted. 
and what happens with that, whether it's permitted to collapse, whether it reaches an agreement, will obviously have pretty big implications in China and also outside of China. And we have a very good piece on the website today, the New Statesman website, by George Magnus, explaining the crisis and its potential implications. So if you're interested in that, I would recommend reading it. With that, all that remains to say is a big thank you to Rory Metcalf for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure and look forward to um, engaging with this again. Yeah, we do too. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. Tell an enemy too. And be sure to subscribe to the free newsletter version of the World Review at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.